The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to start tonight in verse 10. Uh, If you don't have a Bible or app with you to follow along as we study God's Word, uh, the verses will be on the screens. Uh, If you don't own a Bible and you want one, let us know after the service. We have tons of them, and we'd really like to give you one, okay? Uh, This is the last sermon in our 12-week series through the book of Ephesians. Uh, This also happens to be Palm Sunday, so uh, all of you should have received a palm branch as you walked in today, if you would pull that out right now. You guys didn't get them? I'm just kidding. There was no palm branches. I just want to see who would get nervous, who would know know it was a joke. It was about half and half. You guys did good. Uh, It is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is a reference to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Uh, He's riding on the back of a donkey. I was quizzing the kids today, and I said, Max, there was an animal. Jesus rode into town. He said, yeah, uh, it was a donkey. Actually, it was a donkey that no one had ever ridden on. He started, like, ripping off a bunch of stuff. I'm like, okay. (laughs) Natalie looked at me and said, you got to make your questions better. I said, okay, I'll work on the curriculum, I guess. Just a lunchtime question, you know what I mean? I didn't know I was going to get one-upped by my five-year-old, but anyways. (laughs) So, uh, you know, he's riding in the back. (laughs) He's riding into uh, Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. People were laying their coats in the road. They're cutting branches from trees, right? So thus, Palm Sunday. Uh, And they were laying them in the road in front of him. So, you know, the donkey's feet weren't even touching the road. He's riding on coats and palm branches as a a sign of respect. And people are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. And so that's uh, the reference to Palm Sunday. Uh, This last set of verses in Ephesians is about spiritual warfare, which may seem like it has nothing to do with Palm Sunday, but in fact, they tie together perfectly when you consider why Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that day. If you go to uh, Matthew 21 and you read the account of Jesus riding into Jerusalem with people celebrating him all around, uh, do you know what the very next thing he did was? The very next verse is Matthew 21, verse 12. Let me read that to you. It says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. You see, Jesus was not a politician. He didn't come to Jerusalem to shake hands and kiss babies or give a rousing and inspirational speech. Jesus came in the city to start a fight. In fact, if you read the next several chapters, you will see Jesus gets straight to work throwing major shade at all the religious leaders who were themselves deceived and then leading others into deception as well. And this was all a setup, of course. It was leading up to the most crucial battle in the biggest and most important war in all of history. You see, he got the religious leaders during that week so fired up by challenging their false authority and their false teaching that they got together and decided... They were going to kill him. Now, here's where we see how unorthodox the battle strategy of King Jesus is. You would expect him to try to go get all those people that were singing Hosanna before, try to get all them to join his militia and then you know, overthrow the religious leaders and maybe, if that went well, even go for the Roman occupiers as well. But instead, he lets them capture him. 
and he lets them beat him, and he lets them kill him. And this is because the real battle was not with the religious leaders or the Roman occupiers. They were just pawns in a much bigger conflict. The real battle was against Satan's sin and death. And through his loving and perfect sacrifice, Jesus made a fool of all three of them. Three days later, when he rose from the grave, there was not a shred of doubt who had won the battle. Our supreme commander, the master tactician, our warrior king, he had vanquished his enemies to the praise of his glory and for the good of his people. Though this battle was decisive and it determined the outcome of the overall war, Satan and the forces of darkness are sore losers. Blinded by pride, they've not yet conceded their defeat, and still to this day they are doing all they can to inflict pain and destruction on those whom God loves. And this is why God gave us the instructions we're going to read today in Ephesians 6. Jesus shares with us his unorthodox fighting style by inspiring the Apostle Paul by the power of the Spirit to give us these instructions. So let's read together and we'll learn how to make war like our master. Ephesians 6, 10 through 24. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak, but that you also may know about my circumstances, how I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. Praise God for his word. Amen. All right, let's go back to verse 10 and get to work. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I'm going to read it first. So it says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It is of vital importance that we don't get the wrong message from this verse. Somehow we could read this and inject our modern, western, individualistic worldview into it and think that we are just being told here to be strong. We could turn inward and try to cultivate strength from our own resources and miss the real point altogether. Being strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might is only possible when we come to the true realization that our strength and our might are insufficient. 
We cannot save ourselves, nor can we sustain ourselves. We must be saved and sustained by the only one whose might and power are infinite, and his name is Jesus. So this first verse is not a call to self-sufficiency, it's a call to surrender. We must acknowledge our need for God and in a posture of humility receive his strength. It's kind of like when my kids were climbing a tree this last week. Lucy got to a point. She was close to the ground, but not close enough to jump. She got to this point, and she stuck. And she had tried to work it out herself until her arms were tired and shaky, and uh, she was starting to panic. So she finally called out to me and asked for help. Uh, and when I ran over and I, I put my hands up to catch her and to lower her down, she hesitated. And what was happening is she had to decide if trusting me to catch her and lower her down was safer than relying on her own grip, which was about to give out. The choice seems obvious, but it's still hard for us sometimes to acknowledge that our self-reliance has a limit. And we don't have what it takes to accomplish our purpose on our own. That's the reality. That brings us to verses 11 through 13. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. I don't know where you're at, but I know this may seem a bit extreme to some of you. Some of you could be asking, I mean, is this, what is this, is this poetic license? Is this exaggeration? I mean, what's the language we just read? World forces of darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness, the schemes of the devil? I mean, could, seems like a bit much, maybe, right? Rest assured, friends, this is not hyperbole. This is not exaggeration. It is not mere illustration. Paul is speaking here to the spiritual reality all around us. So what should we understand from this? Well, probably far more things than we could cover in the time we have together today, but here's some of the things that we can learn from this. First, we are in a war, and there is no such thing as a spiritual pacifist. You are engaged in this struggle described here between good and evil, darkness and light. The question is just what your engagement looks like. If you are here today or you're listening to this audio at a later time and you have not acknowledged your inability to make yourself perfect and that you need to be saved because you can't save yourself, if you've not asked Jesus to be your savior, then whether you know it or not, you are fighting on the side of the forces of darkness. And I would plead with you to acknowledge that and to bow your knee to Jesus, the only good king, and to join his army. You see, this conflict is not like physical wars. And you, you might push back on that and say, well, what do you mean? How is it that you can be sure I'm fighting with the devil against God just because I maybe don't claim to be a Christian or haven't yet surrendered my life to Christ? Well, see, this conflict isn't like physical wars. Satan and his soldiers are masters of deception. And they have convinced many that leading a good life, by whatever definition you're using, is the pinnacle of human existence. And here's the issue with that. Participating in this lie helps to promulgate this lie. 
Participating in this lie helps to spread this lie. Your very participation is showing others, even if it's only by example, that living this way is acceptable and right, and that aids the forces of darkness in their agenda. That's the first posture you can have. My point here is that there are no pacifists. There is no neutral zone to stand in. There's no DMZ here. You're either fighting against God or with God. The second posture you can have is, is perhaps you have already seen the light and declared your need for Jesus, and thus you're no longer an unwitting slave soldier of Satan. This does not mean, though, that you are faithfully engaged in the battle against your old master. You see, even those who belong to Jesus can be deceived and distracted away from their occupation as soldiers of light. Many have claimed to serve him, but have been pulled away from the battlefield by various distractions, temptations, and sins. Some have grown weary from the fray and just deserted their post altogether. Whether through selfish distraction or weary desertion, if we stop striving against our enemy, we leave openings and create space for Satan to wreak havoc in our ranks. And this is why we were told, first thing, as this set of verses starts off, the first thing we're told is, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We're going to need his help not to fall prey to those distractions. We're going to need his help not to grow weary in well-doing and thus abandon our post. And this is also why, friends, we are encouraged over and over again not to try to engage in this battle alone. Uh, the ancient Spartans had a fighting system that illustrates this point pretty well. They would stand side by side, layering their shields upon one another so that each fighter was reinforced by the strength of the next. They stood or they fell together. But when every fighter did their job, it was nearly impossible to beat them. But if just a few gave up or didn't do their part, the entire group then was made vulnerable. That is not totally unlike what it looks like for us as soldiers of the cross uh, up against the enemy of the forces of darkness. The third posture you could have is that you could be engaged in a spiritual battle as is described, as we are encouraged in these verses. Uh, you could be standing firm, taking your place among the ranks in God's army of light, obeying the commands of our king and knowing that if it were not for him, you would still be advancing the pride and hate and blindness of the devil and those who serve him. So the first thing we need to see from these verses is that we are in a war. We are in a war. There is no question about that. You're participating somehow. What does your participation look like? The second thing we can learn from these verses is that the struggle is real, but we can stand firm. C.S. Lewis talked about two opposite errors in the way we think about Satan, demons, and evil. We can either underestimate them or we can overestimate them. C.S. Lewis said that we can not believe they exist at all, one error, or we can blame absolutely every negative thing on them, the other error. And he said the devils are equally pleased with either error. In the modern world, especially in the West, many think that everything has a natural or a scientific explanation. So 
We try to explain away evil in various ways, but in the end, they really don't answer the depth of darkness we can observe around us. And it's pretty easy to see how this would help evil forces accomplish their goals, isn't it? If we strive with all of our human effort to rid the world of evil, but we don't acknowledge that evil really exists, we will be forever wasting our efforts with superficial responses. It's kind of like we keep running around sticking Band-Aids on people that are having a heart attack, right? You can feel really great that you helped as you walk away, but they're still laying there dying. You didn't really help. On the other side, though, there are those who think every single negative thing happening is the active work of a demonic force. And that keeps us in a futile game of chasing our tails just in a different way. Uh, I've shared this experience before because it is the best real-life example I have to illustrate it. Um, and maybe you haven't been around somebody like this. That I would say maybe, uh, I think C.S. Lewis talked about magicians. Sometimes we act like magicians almost. Like we are, you're, either, you're the substitious, don't believe in the demonic at all, or superstitious, right? Like seeing demons everywhere, all over the place. And so I was a part of an outreach. This was maybe 12 years ago. <clears throat> and we were downtown. And we were riding in one of those um, buses that you see at the airport. And so we pulled down into this area where there was a camp of folks that we were going to serve and uh, try to preach the gospel to. And so we did that. And then we all hop back on the bus. And the guy turns the key. And nothing happens. And instantly, this brother starts going into, like, casting demons out the motor. I mean, it was... All, right now, we need to have a, a like fire and brimstone prayer service over the motor of this bus because it's definitely demons is the reason why it's not starting. Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe demons can mess up motors, but I would think if, if they could, then you know, like all of our cars would probably not work uh, if Satan had that power. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. But my, my, my point was, you know, he, and he's just going off, and he's like grabbing the steering wheel, and he's, you know, he's, he's casting all the demons out, right? Just going for it. And, I, you know, he took a breath, and I said, hey, man, quick idea. Pop the hood. I'm going to see if, like, a battery cable's loose or anything. <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe. So uh, it was. And so that's what happened. Um, and, so, and so we got on our way. So you see what I'm saying? I don't know. Maybe you've never been around anybody like that. I'm just trying to give you an example. There are times we can overdo it, um, and there are definitely ways that we can underdo it. We can overassume demonic activity and underassume it, and both of those things uh, will make the forces of darkness happy because they can, they can mess with us. Um, we, we are all prone to an oversimplistic view of the struggle that is navigating the imperfect world we're in, broken by sin. We all have a tendency to be oversimplistic, probably to one way or the other. We need to realize, though, that things rarely fit into the neat categories we wish they could or would. Uh, let's, let's think about this for an example. Let's think about anxiety and depression in this context. Does Satan want people anxious and depressed? Yes. Because God wants people full of joy and peace. Okay, And Satan hates what God loves, which, thankfully, is us, right? Right. So here's my question for you. Let's, let's put what we're talking about into practice. Is 
anxiety and depression the result of dark demonic forces oppressing people? Or is it the result of uh, different than that, perhaps natural causes? Yes, is the answer, right? Yes. And it's actually really more complicated than that, really. Anxiety and depression can be from something physical, right? So someone may just need to rest more or eat better or take medicine. It might be psychological uh, or emotional, right? There might be trauma or abuse, either past or present, that needs to be dealt with. The issue could be moral. Someone may be harboring unforgiveness or anger or lust and need to repent, and that's why they're anxious or depressed. Or it could be that demonic forces are at work. Or it could be a combination of a couple of those things. But we've done great harm by being overly simplistic many times. God doesn't do that. We should not do that. The point is we can't be overly simplistic in our understanding of struggle and suffering. We can't just settle for coping mechanisms either. So that means we need the help of the Holy Spirit to discern why people are suffering so we know how to help them fight. So let's not be foolish and dismiss the demonic as if it doesn't exist. But let's also not be foolish and decide that the forces of darkness are more powerful than they really are. How do you figure that out? Well, we have the Word of God and we have the Spirit of God. And as is always the goal, hopefully right now, you're being pushed into a realization that you need to be strong in the Lord and in his might because you don't have the tools in your toolbox to figure out everything that needs to be figured out, right? I don't know. And if somebody said, oh yeah, I've got a 15-point questionnaire that can nail every single time exactly if somebody's dealing with natural causes of their suffering or demonic or whatever, I'd have, to, I'd have to tell them to take their list and kick rocks because I don't believe you. You need the Holy Spirit's help for this. God set this thing up that we can't do without him. Have you figured that out yet? That, he, that, that was on purpose. <laughs> so, I mean, praise the Lord. I'm glad. I mean, figuring that out and embracing it's, you know, whew, it's like G.I. Joe, man. Now you know and knowing's half the battle, right? Ooh, nobody knows what G.I. Joe is? <laughs> what, what, what's wrong? You don't like G.I. Joe? I'm getting too old. Okay, cool. All right. Part of being strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might is relying on his wisdom to know which of the weapons he's given us we should deploy at a given time. That's part of what he's helping us with and part of what operating in his strength looks like. Make no mistake, the devil is scheming and 2 Corinthians 2.11 tells us we should not be ignorant of those schemes. His primary scheme is deception. John 8.44 says that lies are his native language, and he is the father of lies. Those lies come in two major forms, temptation and accusation. Temptation tries to get you to feel more qualified than God, to determine right from wrong, and thus get you to disobey him. Accusation tries to get you to feel unworthy of God or unloved by God and thus get you to disobey him. And he will switch on you. He will, if you get wise to one thing, he'll, he'll move a slight angle and come another way. He'll flip-flop depending on the season, depending on what you're prone to. 
again, I don't want to give the forces of darkness too much credit, but that's, the, the Bible here lays a really good balance for us. We struggle, right? If you look at the, that Greek word, it's, it's, not like, it's not like a war on large scale. That, that word struggle, it's like when you've gotten past swords and spears and you've gotten to the point where we're hand to hand and we're like wrestling on the ground, you know, it's like, it's like we're down to the, somebody's about to die here. It's that is the word. So this struggle is real, but we can stand firm, right? So we don't ignore the fact that this is a real thing, but we also don't get hopeless or full of anxiety and, and, and nervous about it because ultimately we know who's fighting with us and he doesn't lose. Temptation, accusation. Okay, so verses 14 through 17, they lay out the armor that Jesus provides so that we can stand firm against both of these schemes. So we can push back, defend ourselves, and defend others against temptation and accusation. Okay, so that brings us to verse 14. It says, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with the truth. We need to have a serious talk in this church about how many people aren't girding their loins. That was better than you act. Come on now. What is up? Did you guys conspire beforehand? Don't laugh at any of his jokes today. Let's see if we can mess him up. Okay, so what, what does that mean? What is girding your loins? So that, that's, <laughs> some translations will help you with that and call it the belt of truth. And that's what it is. It's, the, the idea there is a belt. So um, what, what is that about? What is the belt of truth? The, the, the belt would be the first thing a soldier puts on. It would gather up the rest of the garments under the armor, and it would make it so that the soldier could move freely once everything else was put on. Because if that wasn't there, things would be getting stuck, nothing else would fit right, and so it, it, it needs to be first. And so the question is, why is truth this first foundational piece as Paul's laying out what it looks like for the Christian to be armored up and ready for battle? What's the deal? Well, in an environment where many are seriously asking the question if truth even exists, are you aware that that's a conversation happening in our culture today? Do you know that? You need to know that. And we need to know how to think about it. And we need to be able to know how to talk about it to people because there's a lot of folks that are buying into this idea that it's... And, and, and I understand that it sounds very uh, compassionate, harmonious, and loving to say, uh, you know... I don't know what's true. You don't know what's true. My true is maybe not your true, and, and let's just all leave it at that. You want to get ice cream? That wasn't a real offer for ice cream, just full disclosure. I don't have any ice cream. Sorry. I'll, I'll think of something else to say next time. Um, but that's, that's, there's a lot of appeal to that, um, but it's dead wrong because Jesus came in grace and truth. Jesus is the most loving ever. He's perfect in love, and you can't have truth without love. You can't have love without truth. Truth is a real thing, and God is its arbiter. So um, we don't live in a time where we can assume that people agree on basic fundamental truths about God because many aren't even sure if truth is a real thing. And this is really shaky ground to stand on, and there's no way we can fight effectively if we don't settle one simple thing in our minds and hearts. What is that? God's word is true. The rest of the armor is of no help if we aren't sure that righteousness, salvation, faith, or the gospel are true. Without trusting that God's word is the supreme truth that governs all other sources of truth, 
like science and experience, that's, it's okay to say that. We can learn some truths from the sciences. You can learn some truths from experience. The Bible's not going to teach my kids how to climb trees right and not get stuck. Okay? The story about Zacchaeus doesn't go into detail. Right? So you can learn from experience, but the Bible governs all those other truth sources. And if one of those other truth sources claims a truth that is contrary to what the Bible says, then that truth source loses. That's a biblical worldview. If we don't do that, if we don't, if we don't trust that God's word is the supreme truth that governs all others, we are running into battle naked, and that is never a good idea. Satan tempted our first parents in the garden by accusing God of being untrue. Remember, you will not die. Securing ourselves with the belt of truth, it shuts down this scheme. If we are settled that if God has said it, it's true, it makes it much harder for Satan to come with accusation or temptation, especially when he's trying to accuse God of not being good, not being loving, not doing what he's done because of his great care for you, which is a lie we're all prone to believe. Next is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate covers our heart and organs. It covers the core of who we are. And one of Satan's favorite schemes is to get us to doubt who we are in Christ through accusation. Knowing that our righteousness is not because of our own perfection, but because Jesus was perfect for us, doesn't leave room for the devil to convince us we don't deserve this piece of armor, and so we shouldn't wear it. We know we don't deserve it. But Jesus gave it to us as a gift, so we should wear it humbly. I haven't earned righteousness. I get that. But what's Satan got to say to me about it if I'm cool with that? Yeah, I know. I don't deserve the breastplate of righteousness. Yep. But Jesus does, and he said, I can have it. So what up? Right? Amen. Amen. The shoes of the gospel of peace. Question. Have you ever wore the wrong shoes for an activity? Okay, good. I'm not going to be alone on this one. <laughs> oh, man. Um, <laughs> we did some trade shows for a really awesome nonprofit I was a part of some years ago. And um, we stood on these concrete floors for like eight hours straight. And I swear to you, I am not exaggerating. By the end of the day, it felt like I owed somebody money, and they took a bat to the bottom of my feet. It hurt so bad. I don't know if it was necessarily the shoes or just that we were standing on concrete or just that I was overweight at the time. I don't know. I don't know what the factors were, but my, I'll never forget how bad my feet hurt. And I'm trying to be tough, but like little tears are welling up in the corner of my eyes. It's like, whew. But here, let me ask you this. Do you know that this is true? If your feet are hurting, it will shut you down. Everything else on your body could feel fine, but you will park your rumpus with the quickness if your dogs are barking. Am I right or wrong about that? That's the truth. It, you got to have your feet right, man, whatever you're doing, whatever the activity. And this is why this particular piece of armor is so crucial. So crucial. The gospel of peace keeps us in the fight because it first of all reminds us of how much God loves us 
how much mercy he's freely given us, and how good he's been to us. This is why we fight as free men and not as slaves, because we love our king, and our king loves us. The gospel also keeps us up and engaged in the battle because it cultivates in us love for others. See, the gospel keeps us from seeing others as just ignorant and saying to ourselves, well, if they were smart like me, well, they would just fight on the right side. No, 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 dear friends, no. The gospel reminds us constantly that we had to be rescued. Somebody else had to fight for us to be free. And so we gladly join him in fighting for the freedom of others. Amen. Have your gospel shoes on, man. Keep the rest of everything else straight. The shield of faith. We're talking about the the fiery arrows of the evil one as primarily temptation and accusation. Uh, The beauty is, the Bible says here, that the, the, the shield of faith can extinguish them all. It's a pretty powerful thing. Let me read you this. Uh, I'm in Hebrews 11. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. I'm jumping now down to verse 7. I could have read the whole Hebrews 11 Hall of Fame, uh, but, uh, or Hall of Faith, rather. But uh, I would have got sidetracked and started preaching about some of the mother brothers and sisters. So we can't do that. So I picked one. By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. See, friends, when we walk by faith and not by sight, our eyes are fixed on God. Noah had many chances to be tempted to quit or to believe untrue accusations about himself and God as he built a giant boat in the desert for 75 years plus. Lots of chances to be tempted to accusation and to, be, uh, to just be tempted, period, right? But here's what happened. God sustained him, and he persevered through that. See, the shield that Paul had in mind is probably not just one of the little round ones, the cute ones, right? It's probably more of a functional one. Um, it would be one that would cover all of you, a large shield. But here's the thing. It's not just to cover your body from getting hit by an arrow because here's the reality. Satan doesn't care if he hits you necessarily. He just wants you to look at him instead of what God has called you to do. That was a whole point of the flaming arrows in warfare. A lot of what they were doing, they knew the other team had shields. They knew, eh, maybe a couple will sneak through. We'll get a couple guys in the neck or whatever. But that wasn't the whole point. The whole point is we're going to shoot these flaming arrows because even the ones that hit the shields and stop, now your shield's on fire. And people start to panic a little bit when there's tons of fire around, right? Rightly so. That's why this language is very specific. The shield of faith extinguishes those. And it's not just about keeping you from getting hit from an arrow. It's to keep you from getting distracted and even looking at where the arrows are coming from and getting pulled off to the right or to the left. See, when we get behind that shield of faith, you can imagine written on the inside of it are God's good commands and his precious promises. 
the things that we need to fix our eyes on instead of being distracted by the enemy. It's not just about keeping the arrows from hitting you. Because here's the thing, if you're peeking up over that thing, looking where the arrows are coming from, what, what's exposed? You may have a helmet and you may have a shield, but a good archer can sneak one in there on you, right? This is to shield your eyes as well. Keep your eyes where they're supposed to be. Focused on what? God's good commands and God's good promises. It's almost like God puts directions step by step on the back of that shield so that we can just look to him and what he has said and we can keep advancing. And when you think about it like that, there's a phrase that makes a little more sense. We walk by faith and not by sight. Right? Amen. The helmet of salvation. Similar to the breastplate of righteousness, keeping our identity in Christ safe, the helmet of salvation stops us from believing the accusation that we are unfit to be in this fight. Here's the truth. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But salvation doesn't make us expert soldiers right away. We still fumble and we stumble. We sin and we fail. But our king is gracious. He corrects and he chastises, but always with our growth and flourishing in view. God is a good father and he disciplines and instructs us as he sanctifies us. And as he trains us to be more effective soldiers. Our enemy would like to get in our heads and convince us there's something better than the salvation God provides. And get us to sin in order to have that supposedly better thing. Or he'd like to get in our heads and accuse us that we're unworthy of it. And so we should have no confidence in it. Protecting your head is pretty important. Do you agree? And so we know the helmet of salvation is a crucial piece of this armor. Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit, assigns salvation to be that piece of the armor. And here's the thing. It's not just the reality of our salvation through Christ that needs to be protected. But what also needs to be protected is how precious salvation is to us. If the salvation that Jesus bought for us by dying in our place for our sins and rising from the grave, if that salvation is a treasure to us, then the counterfeit garbage that Satan offers will have much less appeal. Amen. The sword of the Spirit. There is literally no better explanation for this piece of the armor uh, than the master class that King Jesus himself put on. And so uh, I'm going to read this to you. This is Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, the temptation of Jesus. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. 
Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. I literally don't think there's any commentary I can add that can help you understand how to wield the sword of the Spirit better than that right there. If you want more instruction, you want to get better at what it means to use the sword of the Spirit, just go read this again. Because that's what's going on. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Jesus smacked the slobber right out of the devil's mouth with it. Pushed him back. Sent him running. There's, There's much that has been made of the fact that the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is the only offensive thing listed here. There's no maces or nunchucks or bow and, arrow, you know, bow and arrows in the armor. Um, I mean, I would have voted for nunchucks if God gave me a vote, but he didn't, so we just have a sword. But that's cool. Um, but I, I think it, it's important to understand that, yes, a sword is an offensive weapon, but a sword is also defensive. You can parry with a sword. You can defend with a sword. You can stop attacks with a sword. And so the Word of God does both. The Word of God helps us as the rest of the armor does, to defend and stand firm. Uh, but the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is also part of how we go on the attack. We take ground. Uh, we go forward uh, for the sake of God's kingdom and the glory of its king. Amen. Verse 18. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. We must be in constant communication with our commander. And he has made this possible through prayer. There is a great value in special times set aside for quiet uh, prayer with the Lord by yourself. But here, and I mean that, that's needed, but here we are called to take that prayer into every hour and every situation of the day. God's desire is to be in constant communication with us. And if we realize that it is Only if we are strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might that we have any chance in this fight, we're going to want to be in communication with him as well. Praise God he wants to be in communication with us. May we be more and more thoroughly convinced of how much we need constant communication with him. The last five verses here, we see Paul acknowledge uh, that these people he's writing to, they know he knows that they're going to have genuine concern for his well-being because they really love each other. Uh, so he's going to send Tychicus to give them a full update on his condition. Um, he's expressing his love, kind of final uh, farewell to them. He's telling them he loves them, and, and he kind of speaks a blessing over them. Uh, but we also see him in verses 19 and 20 ask for prayer. And this prayer request shows us the mentality of a good soldier. Let me read you verses 19 and 20 again. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Interesting. We don't see here Pastor Paul asking this congregation that he loves to pray for his freedom from chains, He doesn't ask that they pray for better conditions for him. Here's what he asks. That in the midst of this imprisonment, he would not waste the opportunity to speak boldly of the beauty and truth of the gospel. Whew, that's a good soldier's prayer right there. 
That's the kind of mentality we're being called to here. Good soldiers joyfully acknowledge that their purpose is to serve their king. They know that they are part of a mission far greater than themselves, and they are willing to give their life to fulfill that mission. If soldiers can conduct themselves like this in the service of imperfect human kings and temporary countries, surely we who serve the king of kings, who rules our perfect eternal country, can as well. And all the more. Amen. May we be loyal, faithful, well-equipped, and effective soldiers for God's glory and our good. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, we thank you for these scriptures. Thank you for inspiring Paul by the power of your spirit to help us understand the true nature of spiritual conflict, to kind of pull back the curtain and let us see that we need to stand firm because the attacks are real, that demonic oppression is real, that the forces of darkness really do have an agenda, and they are trying to bring destruction and pain against those that you love, Lord. So that's real, but thank you for also calling us to stand firm, and not just calling us to stand firm, but showing us how it is you've equipped us to do that. Thank you, God, that you never ask us to do something you're not willing to lend us your power to do. God, I ask that a vibrant realization of our need for you came out of these verses today. As we see the reality of spiritual warfare, may we understand how unqualified we are to step into that without you. But God, if you're with us, that we can, we can step in and wreak havoc on the enemy because you're with us, because your spirit fights with us and for us. Thank you for the armor that you've given us. Thank you, dear Lord, for the belt of truth, and the breastplate of righteousness. Thank you for the shoes, the preparation of the gospel of peace, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. Thank you that you've given us these things. Thank you that you have called us to stand firm. Thank you that you'll not leave us alone in that endeavor. God, I ask that we would make an impact in this war, that we would be of value to you, our good king. Lord, help us not to be the distracted ones, sitting off to the side of the battlefront. Help us, God, not to be ones that are, that are foolish and, and think that all of this is just hyperbole and, and, and be so naturalistic in our vision of the world, God. May we have a proper balance. God, may we come to you and ask for discernment daily, hourly, that we can interpret the situations that we're in and the interactions we're having with people and we can understand how the best way is we can help people. Lord, these things are complicated. It's not something that, no matter how smart we get, Lord, we can't figure this out. This is spiritually discerned. And so we need the help of your spirit. Thank you, God, you said we could ask for this and we would have it. God, I thank you for this entire series through the book of Ephesians. Lord God, I pray a blessing over this congregation, for every person that's followed along through the audio, God, I ask that these words of, of this pastoral letter, God, that they would not be something that caused us to nod once a week in agreement, but God, I ask that they would be written upon the tablet of our heart, that they would affect change in the way we think, in the way we act, in the way we speak. God, may we rejoice in the fact that there was a barrier between us and you, 
And there was a barrier between us and one another, but Jesus came and crushed it into dust. And God, may we live in light of the freedom that you have purchased for us with the precious blood of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've taught us and all that you've done in us and all that you continue to do. We submit ourselves joyfully to the process of being refined by you and being conformed into your image. We're so thankful, Lord, for your patient long-suffering with us and your mercy upon us. It's new every day, and we need it. So we thank you, God, for your word. Please help us not be hearers, but doers also for your glory, dear Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.